Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to spend the hour today talking about what's going to happen on July 23rd when we celebrate 50 years or remember 50 years since the uprising here in the city of Detroit. I want to talk to you, the listeners, about your stories from 1969 or 1967, the things that you remember, the things that frame those memories for you. And, of course, we want to talk about language. How does the language we use to describe events, historical and current, craft the way we feel about those events? Think about words like thug or looting or chaos or massacre. How are these used in the media and in everyday conversation, and how much does it matter and affect our long-term memories, the way that we use those? These words carry weight, but how significant is that weight as we shape our thoughts and beliefs about something like the uprising and civil disobedience of 1967 here in Detroit? Why do we choose to use words like riot or rebellion? We want to start today with Robin Queen, who is the department chair and professor of linguistics at the University of Michigan. Thanks, and thanks for having me on, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, so, as I said in the intro, words matter, and it's not just—it's not just about being accurate in the way that we use words to describe things. It's about the power, the emotional power, the cultural power of words. Riot versus rebellion, of course. I think, is one of the most powerful examples of that. And when we're talking about 1967, uh, the, the choices we make about those words, they really do matter. Yeah, they really do. And part of what makes them matter is that we believe they matter, right? I mean, so, I mean, one of the things that's very interesting about words is there's different ways that they sort of get caught up in our cultural moments. So one of the ways is how we actually define them. So, like you mentioned, at one level, we all sort of think of words as having kind of an, there's an accurate, clear definition. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's not really how words work. Um, many words, and especially common words, have all kinds of meanings. Um, and those meanings come out as we use them. Now, there's, they're sort of constrained in certain ways. But you can think of all kinds of words that can mean different things in different contexts with different inflections. Um, so the word itself is not really the carrier of that power. The power comes from us as people using them, using words with one another. So that's one of the ways words really matter, or that we really believe they matter. Um, the other way that they really matter is in um, which words get chosen for what kinds <laughs> of events, right. and especially whose words get chosen. Yeah. So in the Detroit uprising case, the difference between riot and rebellion is not really about what does riot mean and what does rebellion mean, um, you know, what, which one of those most accurately captures the event. In that particular case, it's, it's more whose choice gets to be the dominant choice, and that's a matter of social struggle, social negotiation. Um, we can pin that on words, but the words themselves are really the carriers um, for all kinds of really social dynamics between people. Right. And, and it really matters, it really matters who the speaker is when those words Absolutely. are spoken and, and who the object of the words are, the listener or the person being, being talked about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, a, a really good example of this that everyone will, of course, be familiar with are various 
epithets or bad words that mean something very different when used by a member of one group to describe a member of a different group than when used internally among people in a single group for one another. Often those references are joking. Often, I mean, there's all kinds of ways in which um, the meaning of that term actually derives from who used it and who they used it towards. Right, right. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. My guest is Robin Queen. She's department chair and professor of linguistics at the University of Michigan. We're talking about the power of language when we talk about the 1967 uprising here in Detroit. Some people say it was a riot. Other people say it was a rebellion. What do they mean when they use those words? And what power do those words have in our culture? Uh, Robin, I I want to ask you about words changing over time. Right. The word riot means something a little different today than it did probably 50 years ago. Rebellion sort of means something different uh, than it did then. Uh, talk about how those words have sort of morphed around this, this, this incident in 1967. Right. So, I mean, I think what you see, especially with riot, is a notion of a sort of chaos of um, indiscriminate um, uh, violence, really. Um, whereas rebellion, you see more a sense of a sort of that there's a message behind the mm-hmm. actions, that the actions are done intentionally to make a very clear point. Um, I'll have to be honest and say I don't have a, as strong a sense of how those particular words have changed their meanings over time, and particularly in relation to the 67 events. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, but words really do shift quite a bit um, in, in, in time because we use them and our context is constantly changing. If you think of a word... Um, well, I mean, just to give you one example, a very old example, the word deer, of course, means a very specific animal. Yes. But um, earlier, it was a much more general term for animal in general. So oh. it didn't mean that specific one. It meant a general one. And over time, in English, it, it got kind of narrowed to be a very specific thing. Um, um, the word dog did something very similar. So, I mean, words are constantly changing as the context in which they get used changes. So, um, like I said, I, I'm not as familiar with how riot and rebellion specifically were being used in 67, mm-hmm. but certainly now I think what you, you know, riot really captures the kind of chaotic notion of violence in a way that rebellion doesn't. Riot also seems to be very, you know, leaderless and just kind of, um, well, like I've said a couple times, chaotic. Right, right. Um, and, and so... And almost Whether in retrospect, under- they they mean different things too. I mean, w- w- when we think about when we think about those words uh, today, uh, again, like re- the 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 use of the word rebellion, for instance, has I think gained agency over fifty years, whereas riot has lost uh, agency, and and that has to do with the way that we have changed the way we see those events in in retrospect. Sure. And I mean, I think one is, I think especially with a term like rebellion, um, the idea that there's a message behind the activity. Uh, and I suppose you could probably think about some of those same um, dynamics around some of the events of the last several years around um, uh, police shootings of, of, of civilians, with, sure. you know, uh, that, that those activities were often characterized as peaceful, but then turning riotous or you know, where you could also argue that there was a 
there was a a, um, a clear, agentive message behind the all of the activities. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, talk some about the idea of agency. Who has the agency to define these terms right. and to decide which ones will be used? That that matters too. Absolutely. Like that's the struggle really. And, and that's really what's interesting about looking at words is again, because we tend to think of words as having very clear meanings and meaning exactly what they, what they're supposed to mean. Um, it's easy to, to sort of um, not see or not notice the, the um, struggles around agency mm-hmm. um, whose meanings get to be the, 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 the receive the accepted meanings whose choices get to be the choices that are you, that dominate. Um, and usually what you see is, you know, it's dominant groups um, whose, whose meanings and whose choices um, get selected, but people who are, for whatever reason, not in a dominant position in a given context will often, you know, argue against that or rebel against that right. um, and, and work hard to have, you know, different a different meaning and so what becomes interesting is really how that process works Mm. um it's not some i mean the words are flexible enough they'll always words will always do what we want them to do um so where it gets really interesting is what the struggle over words starts to tell us about power about social dynamics about culture yes Okay, Robin Queen, Department Chair and Professor of Linguistics at the University of Michigan. Thanks very much for joining us on Detroit Thank Today. Thank you. Absolutely. Have a good afternoon. All right, uh, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about riot versus rebellion and the 67 uprising. And, of course, we want to hear your memories of the incident, your thoughts about those words. Stay with us on Detroit Today. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We have been talking about the words we use to describe the social unrest in 1967 and other historical events and how the words we use to describe those events affect our perceptions of those events. What about the people who were here when the violence broke out? What words did they use to describe the unrest and why did they use them? How do their memories of those days affect the way they describe them today? We want to spend the rest of the show today talking about that with two people uh, who know an awful lot about 1967 here in Detroit. Ike McKinnon is retired deputy mayor of Detroit and a former Detroit police chief. He was a Detroit police officer during the summer of 1967. Also with us is Melba Boyd. She is a distinguished professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University. Melba and Ike, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sure. Uh, We also want to hear from you, the listeners. What do you remember about 1967 here in Detroit? And how do you describe those memories today? What words do you use to describe the things that you saw, the things that you felt, the things that you witnessed during the uprising. And have those words changed over time? 
that you used to call it one thing, and now you're sort of rethinking that and calling it something else. Words matter, and it's okay that we have sort of changing perceptions of those words. I'm really curious among the listeners how that plays out. What words do you use to talk about 1967? 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work your comments into the conversation. Oh, Melba, I want to start with you. Uh, talk about the words we we use to describe 1967 and why we use those words and 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 what they mean. They are not just descriptors; uh, they have power beyond that. Uh, exactly. Also, uh, part of who I am uh, as a poet, and um, so I pay very close attention to words. But I'm also, likewise, I'm a, a historian. And I've, also, I've written on the 1967 rebellion, is what I call it. Um, I think that uh, language and also our connotative uh, understanding of words changes over time, as you indicated earlier. And so when 67 occurred, um, we referred to it the way that the media referred to it, mm-hmm. you know, as a riot. And it was associated with a number of other uprisings uh, that were occurring across the country over a period of time, I think beginning with this 1965 Watts uh-huh. um, in, uh, rebellion. Um, and I think that, but as a person who has studied it and, and, and had conversations uh, with other scholars uh, and looking at the details of that uh, historical occurrence, um, it was more than the idea and the use of the word riot. A riot um, tends to be um, a conflict um, between, you know, sets of people, sure. shall we say. So we had, for example, in 1943 in this city, we had a race riot. It was a actual uh, physical um, confrontation and conflict between black people and white people in the city of Detroit. Yes. Um, but also we should remember in 1943 that when the police, uh, so-called attempted to quell that riot, they, they basically supported and, and attacked, uh, supported the white side and attacked black people as well. Mm -hmm. However, it was the, what instigated that had to do with racial conflict between black and white people also precipitated by certain policies, um, and discriminations that existed, but, it's very different when you look at 1967 because that incident, that that particular historical uh, event was precipitated by, uh, you know, severe police repression yes. of black people and people of color in the city of Detroit, and so what leads up to that particular explosion had to do with another example and an extreme and, and unnecessary behavior on the part of police officers who went into the um, blind pig that night. And it was ironically the celebration of the coming home of two Vietnam vets. Mm-hmm. So you can just imagine the feelings uh, in that room where you have two young men who have just survived war 
uh, quote unquote, defending democracy, and then you have them return to the same kind of disregard and abuse in their own hometown. So the response really was, I think, the consequence of ongoing repression um, and also uh, people being really just fed up with it. And and so it was the perfect storm, essentially. So it was a response to police and the police as as an organization, an institution that represents the government and empowered to actually uh, punish people with impunity in particular black people with impunity. So that makes it a rebellion. That's what you're rebelling against the state. You're rebelling Something against. Something very specific. It's very specific in, in that sense. It's not just the idea of a riot indicates that you have black people just wilding out because <laughs> they want to, like, break in stores and take things and, you know, uh, be um, unruly and uncivil. And that's not the root cause of what instigated in particular, that um, the rebellion here in yeah. Detroit in '67. Yeah, uh, I, McKinnon, you were a police officer at that time, uh, one of the few African American officers on the force at yes. that time. Talk about how you use words to describe the things that you saw and experienced during that uprising. Is riot the right word for some of what we saw, or is rebellion a better descriptor? It's interesting for me because as a young police officer in the police academy in 1965, we were taught that any time there was uh, this kind of behavior, it was a riot. But the reality is that I don't think that, and I know that, most law enforcement people did not think about causes. And as Melba just said, we go back to 43, but let's go back, let's take in the 50s. And what caused certain things to, to occur? I had witnessed as a young African-American uh, male in Detroit total uh, uh, brutality by law enforcement officers for years. Mm-hmm. And in fact, to myself and my friends. Right. And there was no recourse for poor black people. I mean, if you went to the police station and you made a complaint, then you were arrested. These were things that happened. I mean, I was beaten up in 1957 by law enforcement officers. Part of things that were, it was, I guess it was systemic through the police department. In the 50s in particular, you could lock up a a black person or anybody and hold them for 72 hours uh, without them making a phone call and you were arrested for just because. And so this became part of the things that people were terribly upset about. And so we get to 1967, and I recall specifically uh, being out there, and I'm saying, man, these people are rioting. But I'm caught up in, in what was happening and what I went through in the police department, but, but not stop and think about causes. Yeah. And I, I mean, I saw thousands of people doing things. But then as a young man who was shot at by my fellow officers who happened to be white because I was black. Right. And I'm saying, wait a minute, there's, there's more to this. And it was an eye-opener for me. I, I must say that the rebellion of 1967 was truly an eye-opener for me to understand that police officers aren't going to be fair about this thing. And so the causal factors for what occurred and what happened to me just turned me around in terms of, man, there, there's got to be more to this than this. And it became a, an education for me, as, as, as Melba just said, that uh, – this is a rebellion against what was happening. The, the system of, of, of how people were treated, uh, in particular uh, people of color, 
in, in our country. Yes. And so it's there's no question it's a rebellion. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. I am talking with Ike McKinnon, retired deputy mayor of Detroit, former Detroit police chief. He was a police officer during the summer of 1967 here in Detroit. Also with us is Melba Boyd. She is a distinguished professor of African-American studies at Wayne State University. We are talking about the upcoming anniversary of the uprising here in Detroit, 50 years. It will be on July 23rd of 2017, uh, since July 23rd of 1967, which was the day that uh, the uprising broke out at uh, 12th and Claremont here in the city of Detroit. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tom. Tom, you're up first today on Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, you know what? I looked up the definition from, from Google, and in riot, this is a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd, and that's definitely what this was. Also, in terms of the, um, you know, in terms of definition for a rebellion, it says an act of violent, um, oh God, I can't read my own writing, or open <laughs> resistance to an establishment, government, or ruler. And uh, you know what? I think uh, the young lady there mentioned something about the riot and how, you know, people just wanted to break in the stores. And, and that's what it was. I mean, I remember that night, that Saturday night, I was out driving and I was right there at the boulevard in Woodward, and all of a sudden I just heard glass just break everywhere. And, I mean, people were running in the stores. Rose Jewelers was down there, and they were, you know, running in there taking stuff. They were women's store. Winkleman's was down there. And, I mean, just to me it was kind of like total chaos in Bedlam. And, I mean, even 12th Street. 12th was a very, very, you know, viable business community. And after they got the fires put out, but 12th Street smoldered for a year. And I remember this. Like I said, I'm 20 years old and almost five months. Um I remember seeing amphibians roll down the street and, you know, with soldiers standing up out of the hole mm -hmm. with rifles and what have you. They were up on Woodward. They, I lived on a street called Harmon, right there between Woodward and John R. And I remember them coming down that street a number of times. And I'll say this, and then I'm going to go. I think before people start talking about, you know, a riot or rebellion again, you better think about the economic consequences of what's going to what can happen because right now as I'm talking with you all today we are suffering still some of the after effects of that thing 50 years ago because yes. we had a disinvestment of people out of this city and we had a disinvestment of businesses out of this city yes. and I mean that did a whole lot to kind of put a dagger in the heart of this city Tom thank you very much uh, for the call and the comments uh, again a, a different memory and and one of the things I think is important about this anniversary and about the conversation that we're now having about 1967 is being able to respect that not everybody sees it the same way. Not all of us uh, have the same words that we want to use to describe that. And yes, we need to have a conversation that is frank and honest about what really did happen and why, but I think we need to be able to do that in a way that embraces people who who, who see it differently, people who uh, people who don't want to 
to to use the same words as as we might. Um, and so Tom's call there is is appreciated for that reason. Uh, let's go to Sharon and Warren. Sharon, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, Stephen. Hi, guest. Yeah. Um, so on uh, that particular day, we were at Henry Ford Hospital on our way to Ann Arbor in the ER, and uh, we had a, a problem there. So uh, there were knifing and shooting victims when we were there, and we were wondering what's going on, and that's the first time I heard the word riot. And then we went to Ann Arbor, and then before we came home, we heard uh, and saw on the television that Detroit was in flames and that indeed it was a riot. At that time, our home was in Hamtramck, and we were making our way home through the city of Detroit, and we thought we'd get off at 12th Street, but then it was totally in flames, very scary. So we went on to Hamtramck, and then we learned later that it was a riot. And quite frankly, it wasn't until I hung out with feminists years later that I first heard the word rebellion. And why was it a rebellion? So I didn't understand that because as a white woman, I did not know about the black experience of repression economically, socially, politically. And now I call it a rebellion because I learned more and more about what really happened in wow. 1967. Sharon, that is a tremendous uh, evolution that you're describing there. Uh, and and I, I have to say that's a story that I'm hearing more and more from white Detroiters who were around in 1967, had one impression of what was going on then, have a very different impression now. Sharon, thank you very much for the call. Uh, Melba Boyd, uh, McKinnon, do you have any response to that? Well, I, I'm glad to hear this, but I, I think we have to look at, as I said before, people just didn't go out and start rioting and looting for, for no, no reason, reason whatsoever. Right. There, there has to be a reason. And so if we economically do things to people over a long period of time, if they don't have jobs, I mean, my father came to the city in 1953 looking for a job, and of course, the blacks were given the jobs in the foundries and, and, and given the worst jobs. Now, of course, that's no reason to riot or rebel, but it's a, it's a totality of circumstances, sure. whether it's a police or the system that itself that put people in a situation where, look, enough is enough. I mean, I'm, I'm not condoning what, what some of the things, because probably some of the people did riot. They didn't know what the heck was going on. But the reality is... That let's look at this totality of circumstances. And and like, uh, was it Sharon just, just uh -huh. said, after she was into a situation where you discovered more and more as to why people react a certain way, if, if we go uh, and look at the, the, the young lady who left Detroit, uh, Viola Luzzo, yeah. and, and, and fought for uh, civil rights, how many people are going to do that? And of course, we'll have people who have different uh, terminology for this, but She's one of those people like Sharon who understood and understands this is why people behave in a certain way. Yeah. Uh, you, the, w one of the things that you said that I think is so important is about the lack of other options to, to push back. In other words, this, mm -hmm. this total stripping of people's rights uh, to, to, to be able to stand up mm -hmm. and say, mm -hmm. no, you can't just arrest me for no reason. No, you can't just beat me up. Mm -hmm. For no reason that if you if you did that you you only got it worse and I think that's a really important context. Absolutely, um, Stephen. I think that um, 
what people don't fully understand because communities were so segregated. They were not aware. They only assumed that black people had the same rights as As everyone else. else. And it just wasn't true. So as I indicated earlier, you could be arrested and you could be there. I know in particular in my writing about 67, I talk about in 1965, my father who flagged down a police uh, vehicle because he had been rear-ended um, by another motorist at a stoplight. And they just waved the white motorist away and they cuffed him and started beating him on the street and took him to the precinct, put him in the, um, the lower level, chained him to a chair, to, uh, cuffed him to a chair rather, and uh, anyone who felt like coming and you know punching on him, they could do that. Now, my father had no police record. He was a gainfully employed operational engineer Detroit Public Schools. Um, he was a decorated World War II hero. He had a you know Purple Heart and a Bronze Star, and he was charged with resisting arrest. Mm-hmm. And his um, sentence was uh, suspended. You know, um, but there was no consideration for what had happened to him, despite the fact that he was you know bruised and broken and and. Uh, and there were photographs to indicate that. Yeah. Um, and this was a matter of routine. Of routine, yeah, yes, and, and exactly. And so what, what I'm saying is, is that it's not just simply people who do bad things who are in, having bad experience with police in this city at that time. I mean, I'm, and I brought the example forward because it wasn't uh, an isolated situation. And, you know, you come up as soon as you become a certain age, especially young black men, you are uh, basically conditioned by the police to fear them. Yes. And to um, and you don't have to be doing anything, yeah. as I indicated yeah. in his own experience. Um, so I think that um, one has to, you know, one has to consider what were the circumstances that precipitated the situation. Now, of course. Um, no one is trying to indicate here that in the case of, the, of a rebellion, it was limited. There were instances where people took advantage of the situation. But also you have to remember how was the circumstances portrayed in the media. You did not see what the police were doing, how they were shooting up buildings. Right. All you heard what they were saying, there were snipers shooting at the police. The snipers were returning fire, but you don't see what the police are doing and how the police are shooting up buildings and what's happening, you know, to the people who are being arrested and so forth. Um, And so you have to also be very much aware. Of course there was loss, um, you know, but at the same time I like to think about uh, Robert Kennedy's statement in 1968 when he said, uh, repression breeds retaliation. Yes, yes. Uh, let's go back to the phones here. Lee on the east side. Lee, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, how are you? Yeah, good. Good. Well, my, my recollections are as of a little boy when the uh, when the rebellion broke out, and, and I have adapted the terminology after uh, after learning more about our history and, and, and things, um, because it wasn't just a spontaneous act in my opinion it was certainly it was a reaction to the you know police coming in and, and mistreating the vietnam veterans mm-hmm. over there now my grandparents lived on LaSalle which was two streets over LaSalle yeah. you had 14th and then 12th they lived between Claremont and Euclid so they were right in in the shadow of of where the the event started 
But my recollection are I was three years old, and I remember we had gone to Cedar Point, I guess the day that they called out the National Guard. And uh, I remember we had gone on rides, and my mother had lunch, and we were having a picnic lunch there at Cedar Point between, you know, rides and whatnot. And my father had his transistor radio, and I remember him telling my mother that they've just called out the National Guard. Now, when we started heading back to the city later on that day, we got stopped by the state police as we were trying to head into the city, and they were saying, you can't go into Detroit. And my father said, oh, no, yes, I will. I mean, not only do I have my business in Detroit, but I, we live in Detroit. So one of the things, the most vivid thing I remember is that they started hearing gunshots, and my mother threw my brother, my sister, myself on the back seat of the floor and laid on top of us wow. until we got all the way home. Wow. Wow. So, um, and I, I, I mean, that, that was just a, a vivid memory. I, I don't necessarily remember if I was scared, but um, sure I mean, I remember right, maybe like the next day or two, I remember my father coming home with this long case, and I was like, what's that? And he, he wound up purchasing a rifle, just for, you know, home protection, but uh, that rifle has never been shot once. It's been, never left the case, <laughs> but, uh, you so, know. So, I, Lee, tell, it, Lee, tell me how that experience which is probably one of the first things you actually remember if you were three. Talk yes. about how that shapes the way you th- see things now. I mean, I can't, I, it's hard for me to imagine that being one of the first things that I would remember. Um, I just remember it as being my story. And I know that um, I remember all of my cousins who lived in various parts of the city were all gathered and taken to my aunt's houses out in Inkster. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, they did a, you know, I guess a semi-evacuation, certainly of all the children, you know, because many of my uh, family members, they, uh, you know, had some, some businesses, so they didn't want to leave uh, those. But um, it just impressed upon me, especially as I got older and started understanding history, how that history touched us, yeah. how it touched me, and just the, the recollection of what that meant and how I, I do remember my mother was, uh, she threw us on the floor, you know, um, and I just remember her laying on top of us until my father pulled the station wagon all the way into the back of the house, uh-huh, uh-huh. you know. Um, Lee, but, uh, thank you very much for calling and, and sharing that experience. Go ahead. I, so, Lee, think of that as a three-year-old boy, and that was a significant emotional event in your life. But I want you to, and I'm sure you have already, but think about the number of young men of color who that happened to on a regular basis, whether they're beaten up by the police. And I'm telling you, every male uh, of color in law enforcement that I have talked to throughout all my years since 1965 can tell you of a similar type circumstance in which they were either beaten up or they saw someone beaten up by the police. And so there's this distrust and anger that's happened throughout the years of the name calling. And, and you know, it, it's, I can't think of, in, in particular, my first five years on the job of some not hearing the N-word every day by a police officer. And so those are things that people, men of color in particular, experience. And and this just didn't start in 67 or in the 50s. It was long before that. And so these these are things that we all went through, and certainly as myself, and to be shot at by my fellow officer Mm -hmm. and to survive through that 
and other people who survived through that. Those are things that we all went through. And Melba's done extensive research in this and will tell you that what young men of color went through and why there was this anger. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, let's go back to the phones quickly. Tim in Bagley. Tim, welcome to Detroit today. Hi, good morning again. Wow, what a conversation. Uh, I, too, was very young when my parents and I moved to this city. And uh, at the time, we were living on Indiana and Six Mile. And I can recall the fire and police going to Mumford High School every other day because of the so-called race riots that were going on over there. Um, I agree wholly with your linguist uh, that was speaking earlier, Robin, Mm -hmm. because if you ever want to get a firm and complete understanding, just don't receive everything as you see it. You've got to use the correct terminology and, and linguistic skills to break it down. A rebellion, uprising, whatever, sounds wholly better because that insinuates that there is a causal effect. When you just say riot, you do one thing and one thing only. You destroy the perspective of what's going on here. As your second caller stated, we have not recovered since because certain people tend to believe that, wow, those people do certain things and those people need to be isolated. We need to disinvest from the city because of those certain people. Well, as Ike McKinnon was just saying, or your other guest, I'm sorry, when you are mistreated and the city had become disproportionately other, other than Caucasian, mm-hmm. people were not only being cursed at, mistreated, called the N-word and whatever else, let's look at the less aggressive side. You were told, put your resume in the box, we'll call you. Put your resume in the box, we'll call you. People were tired of not getting the same improper treatment of doing their job, of not moving up, especially when you see a city that's becoming disproportionately African-American. And 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 results are what we know in any city, not just Detroit, any inner city USA. Uprising, resurgence, rebellion, and the unfortunate aspect of that, the news and all those outside looking in tend to use the wrong terminology, and the perspective or the die is cast in a negative life-long, um, I guess, branding, which really in the long term is a incongruent capitalist democracy concept. Those things just don't work. And if Nat Turner had some purists behind him, <laughs> he also had some who wanted to avenge themselves and seek revenge, and as a result, those slaves can't be trusted. Yeah. Tim, thank you very much uh, for the call and the comments. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Ike McKinnon and Melba Boyd about the social unrest in 1967 and the words we use to describe those events. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019. What do you remember about 1967? We'll be right back on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We are talking about the summer of 67 here in the city of Detroit. On July 23rd, we will commemorate the 50th anniversary of the uprising of that summer. We want to hear from you about your personal experiences. What was it like during the uprising if you were alive and here in the city of Detroit at that point, and tell us how you describe those experiences. What words do you use to talk about 1967? Do you say that what happened was a riot, 
or maybe you think it was a rebellion, or maybe you think there is another word that is more appropriately attached to the things that we saw. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work your comments into the conversation. Uh, Ike McKinnon, we've talked to you before about your experiences as a, an officer during the riots or during the rebellion and uh, the, the, the awful things that, that happened and that you, that you saw, uh, things that your own colleagues on the police force did to you. Melba Boyd, I'm, I'm curious about your memories of 1967. Okay. Well, um, as I was saying during the break, I I just graduated from Pershing High School, 1967, class of 67. And I was really just turned 17. I was quite young and just really looking forward to going to university um, in the fall. And so actually I grew up in a neighborhood neighborhood. uh, called Kona Gardens. Mm-hmm. So we were quite a distance away from, from the, the site. Of, yeah. yeah, from the site. Um, so I actually didn't even see smoke. I mean, that's how far away we were, mm-hmm. you know, at Seven Mile Road and um, in Kona. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was bizarre in the sense that you were, we were actually, I was seeing it on the television, um, certainly not going into the area um, because it wasn't safe. Uh, but seeing that imagery juxtaposed with imagery, war imagery coming in from the Vietnam War uh, made it so surreal because the tanks came in um, and the soldiers are there. And then the next, they're showing Detroit on the national news and then they're going to Vietnam. And it was just, for me, a very surreal um, sort of moment to see my city, you know, in, in, this, in this state and then see, you know, what's happening in the war. And, mm-hmm. and, at, the, and at that time, my brother, my oldest brother was in the Marine Corps. And so we were always watching the news, um, you know, saying, well, maybe we'll, you know, we'll catch a glimpse of him or we'll hear something about, or do we hear something about his particular um, um, group battalion, uh, however they describe those units. Um, so it was uh, very conflicting uh, for me, and also uh, very terrifying because we, I never thought that what had happened in some of the other cities would actually happen in Detroit. Um, basically, because regardless of the uh, economic circumstances in general across the United States with regards to discrimination and racism, um, economically, um, black employment in, in the city of Detroit was obviously much better. Yes. Um, people in the city largely owned their own homes, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, this particular area had um, been intensified by the destruction of the neighborhood called Black Bottom as they were building or expanding, you know, bringing through I-75, mm-hmm. uh, which also destroyed a lot of businesses. Now, so when we want to talk about economic destruction, we need to talk about also the, the disregard for black communities and black businesses, you know, by that, government, by government in that case. Um, 
and there was no uh, real sort of consideration, you know, law of eminent domain, however you want to call it, and people being then dislocated and forced into areas uh, where they are in overcrowded, you know, circumstances. Um, also, one has to remember that those a lot of those businesses um, were uh, price gouging, you know, um, and we're not seeing the same necessarily the same kind of consideration for a captive community and how how people when they're operating off the principles <laughs> of capitalism will exploit a situation. Sure. Sure. So. Um, there's also some reason why there is some looting and burning. But the problem, of course, with the with the destruction and the burning is that you can't control the fire. Right. Um, and so, you know, there the, the collateral damage was extensive and unfortunate, um, but also it's very difficult to quell anger. I think people may remember uh, some of the community leaders like John Conyers, trying, uh, Damon hard. Keith, yes. you know, judged uh, Damon Keith going out trying to get people to stop and to, uh, you know, to to return to their homes. But the anger was so intense and so high that they, you know, they're like, you just go away. You know, they refuse absolutely to listen to the people that they previously had regarded as their leaders. Yes. Yeah. So, um we have to consider and remember, you know, all all of those those dynamics and what it means and what it meant. Because unfortunately, because it's not considered within with in terms of all of those dynamics, and the and the city actually becomes more repressive. Um, because what comes after, um, you know, sixty seven is stress. Is is worse. It's I mean, worse. The, the response. It's more by repression. The Detroit police is really to get much tougher right. and more indiscriminate, I think, in right. the way that it was doing the things exactly. that it was doing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Let's go back to the phones here. Carol in Beverly Hills. Carol, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Uh, very quickly, mm-hmm. in 1967, I was 19. I had just finished my freshman year at the University of Detroit. Mm-hmm. I was still living at home. I got home from my summer job, saw the news on my black and white TV and thought, oh, no, I've got to get out of here. When my dad gets home from work, he was akin to Archie Bunker. I do not want to get into a discussion with him. Um, I was already a questioning person. Um, And since then, I began reading James Baldwin, Richard Wright, to this day, Ta-Nehisi, Michael Eric Dyson, and so on. So, so, Carol, I, I have a question for you first. Did you ever talk to your dad? About what happened? Oh yes. And, and what yes, was? Yes, and uh, how did timing that go? was everything. Um, <laughs> it depended what mood he was in. Um, I had been called names by my own family, uh-huh. but uh, my question to you is: Why are some people searching for truth and want to hear other stories, listen to and listen to your program and read, and others never change to this mm-hmm. day? I am still called names by certain members of the family. And now that I have worked with LGBT community, um, mm-hmm. the homophobic names yeah. continue yeah. as well as yeah. the racial epithet. So yeah. I mean, in your experience of your panel, yeah. and, and you, Mr. Henderson, why do some people question and others just accept? Yeah. <laughs> we, we, could, we could have a we whole We could all be like Bill Gates would be extremely <laughs> wealthy if we knew the answer that. That. It's a great question, and it, yeah, it, it does is. point up mm-hmm. one of the one of the difficulties, which is that uh, people get ideas into their head about 
one thing or another and and don't want to listen to to anything else. I do feel like on this subject at least I've seen a change in this community in the way that people, more people I should say, seem open to to discussion about it and open to to thinking more about what they saw as opposed to just reacting to it. But uh, of course, you know, I mean, you, you, you always will have people who, who refuse to do that and, and who are not who are not interested. Uh, Carol, I, I really do appreciate the call there. Let's go to Mary or I'm sorry, Marcy in Rochester. Yes. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah. Uh-huh. Go ahead. Uh, I happened to be in Detroit at that time when the uh, uprising started. I was a second year nursing student the Henry Ford Hospital School of Nursing. And I happened to be up on the fifth floor in my dorm on Byron, West Grand Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And I do remember seeing the flames. And uh, I know our emergency room were, was taking in people that had been injured through this. But as a 19-year-old, I was very naive. Um, I was from Saginaw, and I, it was about 100 miles to ride uh, a Greyhound bus. Detroit, Mm -hmm. which I went home many times on the weekend, but happened to stay this particular weekend. My my big recollection is I remember being up on the roof and seeing the tanks coming down Byron and waving to these um, fellows, you know, from the National Guard, and thinking, my goodness, this is really an experience. Mm. Um, I I worked with many black people through the years. I ended up staying in Detroit and working, uh, especially for the first year, and living down in downtown Detroit, Lafayette Towers. And uh, I, I just, it's been years, and I've come to realize much more deeply what that meant. Um, I, I think I was very naive at that time mm-hmm. and didn't really understand uh, what was going on. But yeah. it, it, it was just a, a really scary time to be there. We were quarantined, not allowed to leave the dorm, right. those of us that remained. Wow. Marcy, thank you very much uh, for that call and those comments. There's sort of a theme, I think, emerging yeah. here among the callers is that people uh, sort of talking about this reexamination that they've gone through in their lives since that time. And and perhaps that is one of the explanations for the sense that I have, that, that, that people seem more willing to discuss these things um, than they used to. Uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to read a Facebook quote that we have that I think really sums up this discussion really well. Robert on Facebook says, the terms riot and rebellion refer to the organization of the activity, not the justification. Rebellions, by definition, are organized violence against a government. Riots, by definition, are spontaneous violence by a group. Neither definition involves justification, an interesting sort of linguistic, I guess, look at riot versus rebellion. Okay, Ike McKinnon, retired deputy mayor, former Detroit police chief, police officer during the summer of 67. Thank you for being here. Also Melba Boyd, distinguished professor of African American studies at Wayne State University. We want to thank the folks at the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History for their help with this program. The museum is holding an incredible series of events related to the 50th anniversary of the summer of 67, titled Say It Loud, Art, History, Rebellion. The next event is White Panther Party, a historic reunion that's happening on Saturday at 2 p.m. It is free and open to the public, and we'll talk more about that event later this week. 
is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, community service of Wayne State University. I'll see you tomorrow.